Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autobiology, the podcast with me, your host, Jennifer Littlefleck. Today is the second episode in our brain series. Last uh, week, we talked about how the brain learns best when it comes to studying. And I put together a whole nice little how to study for a test guide that you guys can check out on my website and um, on the previous episode show notes. But today we're going to talk about patient HM, an epilepsy patient whose experimental surgery in 1953 literally taught the world how memories are organized and formed in the brain. The surgery was actually botched. That's why we learned so much about it because the consequences of this surgery uh, were significant and uh, changed this man's life forever. So stick around and we'll teach you all about how memory works. Welcome to Autobiology Bits with Jennifer Littlefleck, the podcast where you can hear real-life biology stories from a quirky maven to help you become an expert on your own biology. If high school biology had been as interesting as this podcast, you might have become a doctor. Introducing autobiologist Jennifer Littlefleck. We are talking about patient HM today, and I am going to refer to my notes throughout this podcast because I don't want to miss any of the details. It's, it's very interesting, but, you know, safe to say patient HM is the best single most studied patient in all of neurology. Uh, his severe memory impairment that resulted from an experimental surgery uh, became the basis uh, from which we learned how memory functions are organized in the brain. So what happened? Well, basically, the story goes that when HM, and we, his name is actually Henry Molazon. I, th I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm not sure. Um, he was born in Connecticut, and around the age of seven or nine, the details are a little fuzzy on exactly which age, uh, he was knocked down by um, a car, I think, on, an, on his bike, and he had a severe head injury, which didn't really manifest anything until he was about uh, 10 years old, and then he started having seizures. Um, and they were pretty minor up until about the age of 16 when they became very massive. Um, he had a hard time um, working. He did work on an assembly line for a while, but then the seizures became so uh, massive that he could not even work. And so at the age of 27 in 1953, and here I will share a picture of him. If you guys are watching the web broadcast, um, I'll share a picture of him. Here we go. This is Henry right before his surgery in 1953. You can see, nice looking chap. Um, but yeah, he uh, had this experimental surgery. And what it was, was it was called a bilateral, which means in both hemispheres of the brain, both sides of the brain, uh, temporal, medial, you know, uh, ectomy. <laughs> I'm not a neurosurgeon, so don't um, quote me on the, on the, uh, terminology here, but basically uh, your temporal lobe is, if you can see, it's right around your temples, like from your temples down to your ear and around the sides. So um, you have, you know, obviously two 
temporal lobes, you know, one on each hemisphere of the brain. And inside those temporal lobes, you have a structure called the hippocampus. And the hippocampus, um, if you can see, here, I'll stop sharing here for a second. Um, if you can see in my model here is basically right here. It is smack dab in the middle of your brain, and it's a very small small organ, small part of the brain. Let me actually, I can share another photo with you if you're watching the web version and I'll try and describe this as well. Um, I love this website. It's called neuroscientificallychallenged.com. They have really cool, awesome two minute videos on anything having to do with neuroscience. So uh, they have all kinds of really cool videos. But basically, if you're looking at the screen here, you can see that uh, the hippocampus is this red little tiny sliver. And what's interesting is hippocampus, I believe, is Greek for seahorse because when you take it out of the brain, it looks like it's shaped like a little seahorse. But anyway, you have you know one on each side of the brain. And when you... Uh, mess with this, <laughs> they learned that uh, it has horrible implications for memory. Now, the thing is, is, uh, you know, the hippocampus is part of really a complex, um, and there's a couple different parts of the hippocampus that we can get into. He was going to have a huge portion of the hippocampus removed. And uh, on both sections. And when you, and this surgeon in particular, his name was William Scoville, and he was a neurosurgeon in Hartford, Connecticut. And, you know, like I said, the experimental part of this was that um, typically up till now, they only had done like unilateral, which is on one side of the brain. Um, but for, for whatever reason, uh, and there is a reason, I'm not going to get into it here, um, he decided to see what happens with a bilateral, so taking out both sides. And the result of that was patient HM had no ability whatsoever to form new memories. Now, if you listen to the previous podcast on learning, you know that in order to learn, it has to be based on a memory. The first thing you do to learn something is you have to make a memory of it in, in the brain and it has to be stored. And the process of learning is actually recalling that memory over and over and over until uh, the brain has built so many neuron pathways back and forth to that specific memory that it's very easy for you to recall. So uh, imagine then all of a sudden you are unable to perform to form a memory. Well, what is that going to do to your ability to learn anything new? Well, obviously severely hampered. But not only uh, was patient HM unable to form new memories, but he would literally forget you that he even met you if he, you know, uh, let's say you're talking to him and, um, you know, he bends down to pick something up and, and stands back up and looks at you you're new all over again, right? As soon as his attention was taken away from the immediate moment, everything that had just occurred was gone. So it was catastrophic, right? Uh, this, this kid at the time, 27, he was just trying to get his seizures to stop. And now he has basically complete amnesia 
of anything that happened prior, starting at prior to three years before the surgery, and he is unable to to form new memories or learn anything, learn anything new. And uh, so you're like, oh, Jen, I I feel like I know this story. And yes, so if you (laughs) are a huge fan of Drew Barrymore, which I am, uh, and you've watched the movie Fifty First Dates. You understand that Drew Barrymore had a form, similar form of amnesia from a head injury, in which she was only able to retain memories for twenty four hours. And so every morning she woke up, and it was a whole new day all over again. Um, you also may recall Ten Second Tom from that movie, and again, very similarly, uh, you know, it was the inability to maintain any even short-term memory in 10-second Tom. So patient HM was basically kind of a hybrid of these two characters. Um, let me just go back to my notes here because I don't want to say too many things out of order. Um, but what they, you know, what they observed with, with him is he forgot daily events basically nearly as fast as they happened. Um, but the thing was, is he hadn't, any diminishing of intellectual capacity at all. Like he could still, you know, um, his reasoning skills were intact. He could, you know, remember and describe to you and hold a conversation, you know, brilliantly about anything that occurred in his past. But he would uh, say that every day was like waking up from a dream and that every day by itself was, you know, really a lone event. So um, in 1957, now, Remember, the initial surgery where all this happened was in 1953. In 1957, um, they published the results of the first observations of patient HM. And uh, this is still one of the most cited papers in all of neuroscience. Um, And it's still cited with high frequency because, as I said, this event allowed them to truly understand how memory was formed, because even up until this time, they didn't even really understand the hippocampus or the hippocampal, you know, um, cortex or, you know, that whole area um, of the brain. They really didn't understand the structures or each of their functions. And so this was, you know, this, you know, unfortunately, this was like Christmas, you know, for in terms of information gathering for neuroscientists. So he was studied. This was the in 1957 they published the first paper, but you know, he continued to be studied for 50 years. Yeah, 50 years they studied him. Every single day he was brought um, to a testing facility. And you you might say, oh my God, that's horrible. They suggest subjected him to this testing every single day of his life. But Every single day was a completely new day. He had absolutely no memory whatsoever every single day that he had ever done any of this ever ever before. I know it's so crazy, hard to wrap your mind around. Um, but yeah, so they studied him for 50 years until he died December 2nd in 2008 at the age of 82. So that tells you like he was able to live a very long and productive life. Obviously, he was very well cared for, um, but had diminished capacity, you know, to create any new memories. And, and there was more things that happened we'll get into in a minute. Um, 
So anyway, what, what this paper basically established, this initial paper, was that um, the fundamental principle of memory and distinct cerebral functions, and it was separated from other perceptual and cognitive abilities. You did not need the memory center to be able to do other things. Um, and that was new to them. That was um, in the face of prevailing theories that you need, that they were all, you know, in the same um brain region and brain function. And now we know that this whole area is now termed the medial temporal lobe memory system. And and it involves the hippocampus and a a whole bunch of other things, um, specifically the parahippocampal cortex, uh, specifically the parahippocampal gyrus, which becomes a very important structure um, because what they learned a few years later, and, and you have to re- think about this, this happened in 1953, and, and he was studied over the course of 50 years. During the time which things like the MRI were invented, like just things were invented over time that allowed them to continue to learn more about Henry or patient HM over time. So one of the things that happened, obviously, like I just mentioned, the MRI they didn't do an MRI on him right away. And the reason was because um, during his initial surgery, when they removed, um, you know, the hippocampus, they um, had clips that had been placed in the brain and they were afraid that that made him ineligible for an MRI. So eventually they realized that they could safely go ahead and do that. Um, and then they were able to see things that they had no idea about. Now, one of the things that always was curious to me was why he didn't even really have any short-term memory because the short-term memory stuff is in the prefrontal cortex, right? So like I said, that's basically your forehead area of the brain, the prefrontal cortex. That's where your, you know, short-term memory lives. And when you are talking to someone or you're listening to a podcast <laughs> and you're, you're listening and your brain decides, oh, that piece of information is important, it sticks it in this short-term memory area in your prefrontal cortex. And later on, it makes its way to the hippocampus where then it, it gets processed um, in a process called memory consolidation. And then it goes into your long-term memory. So I was you know, if all the damage was in his temporal lobe, why was he having short-term memory issues? And the MRI, lo and behold, showed that he had a lesion in the prefrontal cortex. And when I read that, I was like, oh, wow, that totally explains it, right? And and that uh, further uh, showed them that that is where the short-term memory lives. And then other things became clear to them because of the fact that he remained his, he still had his long-term memories that now short-term memory lives in one place, long-term memory lives in other places. And this hippocampus must be the link to which short-term gets um, converted into long-term. And, and that's essentially, you know, what they realized through studying Henry's um, Henry's failed surgery and his brain after, um, he was able to have an MRI. So yeah. Um, one of the other things that they realized during the MRI was that 
the damage was different than they thought it was within the temporal lobe. And this is really, really critical for how they understand brain damage um, in people nowadays, because what they, they knew that the hippocampus was involved when it was damaged. It was, it had significant memory impairment if you had damage there, but they couldn't understand why Henry's memory damage was so significant. And when they saw the MRI, they realized that the surgeon had also taken out um, some of the parahippocampal gyrus. I don't know how to say that correctly. Um, And it was the front part. So it was the part that was like really immediately attached to the hippocampus, right? But the end of it, or the posterior part, you know, the butt part, you know, your posterior of this parohippocampal gyrus was intact. So what they knew from studying other patients with similar brain damage, similar surgical damage, was that when the posterior part was also missing, the memory damage was even worse. So that's when it started dipping more into, you know, um, long-term memories. So almost, it was almost now they were seeing the, you know, where the intermediate memories started to go into the long-term memories was all part of this parohippocampal gyrus and and whether or not the front part or the back part was involved explained the severity of the damage. And, you know, this may sound very commonsensical, you know, as we're sitting here talking about it now, but trust me, like back in the day, they, they did not understand the anatomy of the brain yet, its functions, and, you know, what was a, what was, you know, part of which structure of the brain. So this was huge people, huge information that they learned. What was so interesting then that they learned from studying Henry over all those years was the very unexpected discovery of different types of memory. And when I say different types of memory, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about when I say, you know, learning your ABCs versus learning to ride a bike, right? So what we call learning your ABCs is more like declarative memory. It's what we call it. Um, It's, you know, very specific things that you learn you know, as an intellectual um, stimulation versus motor skills, you know, things that you use your muscles for, muscle memory. They did not know that these were very two distinct concepts until this crazy experiment that they did with Henry. And this is probably the most unexpected thing they learned about him. So what they did was um, they started to show him, you know, a star and it was, and they showed it to him. It's called, it's called mirroring, um, when they have to draw something that they see. And he was asked over and over again to keep drawing this star. Um, and they measured very different things about, um, about how he drew it, you know, like how long it take it would take him, you know, how um, precise it was, you know, how um, this distinctive details of the star, because it did have, you know, details along with it. Um, and what they saw was that he acquired at the end of three days of doing this 
all day long over and over again, which I know you feel bad, but he did not have any memory of this like immediately after what would happen. He had no recollection, right? Of, you know, when they did the final test, he had no recollection of ever seeing the star before, ever drawing it before. But when they asked him to draw in his mind what he thought was a star, he literally was able to sit down and draw it perfectly the way he had been practicing it over and over again. And this demonstrated for the first time that he could learn something without knowing that he learned it. This was this non-declarative memory because his muscle memory of drawing the star was still there, even though he had no memory of actually learning how to draw it. So this is, this, when this was uh, discovered, oh man, the whole, um, realm of understanding motor memory and and practicing the fact that you could practice memory skills and they stayed in the brain um, for things like athletic competitions. I mean, there, you know, there's whole branches of science that evolved based on this initial discovery with Henry, you know, about being able to learn how to draw something without knowing that you did it. Um, so anyway, not going to beat this dead horse or <laughs> horse dead or maybe I already did, but, um, but this was a, a, just another huge, huge finding. The other thing that they observed, you know, over the course of Henry's life, and this is, you know, where I'm going to kind of wrap it up folks is the fact that over time, um, right when the, the surgery happened, like I said, he pretty much had all of his, um, long-term memories intact starting at three years before the surgery. And when he was tested about these long-term memories about 10 years later, still showed the same amount of memory recall. However, as he started to age and time went on, this changed. And the amnesia or the impairment started to go back to, instead of three years, to 11 years before his surgery. He could no longer remember the last 11 years before his surgery. And, you know, they weren't sure what to make about that. They thought maybe that, you know, over time, more, you know, parts of the brain, brain were being atrophied, you know, but the reality is, is there was other things going on. Um, they, you know, they, there was an a number of documented changes that they saw in various MRIs as he aged, you know, so this is where you start to begin to, you get into like, you know, what was due to the surgery, the brain damage, what was due to aging, but it still gave them a lot of insight into how the brain ages. Um, and one of the things that we know now is that that type of brain aging starts to occur when you can no longer form new memories because what keeps the brain quote unquote from, you know, dying off essentially, if you will, from neurons dying off is stimulation. So if you're not constantly stimulating, you know, um, either by recalling old memories or from creating, and it's mostly from creating new pathways or new memories in the brain, the brain starts to atrophy. So, so now we know a little bit more about that, but at the time they were, they were really not understanding um, what was happening here, but all right. So, so now you know about patient HM, who is likely the most studied person in the history of neuroscience. 
after um, Henry's death, um, he had his family had agreed to donate his brain to science. And immediately um, after um, he passed, they did section his brain into, I think it was 2,400 um, different slices that were then shared with different neuroscience um, people around the world. And a catalog of it is available for free on the internet. Anybody can look at it um, because they wanted anybody who could potentially learn and provide more insight into what happened to Henry to be able to contribute you know, to this story. The paper that actually discusses what the some of the key findings were, and if because if you want to um, continue to learn about this on your own, I, I just want to point you to a great paper. Um, so the uh, examination is called the postmortem examination of patient HM's brain based on histological sectioning and digital 3D reconstruction. This was some seriously cool stuff, man. Um, this was published in Nature Communications, uh, basically January of 2014. And it goes over a lot of the things that they learned from his brain, you know, one of which was studying that prefrontal lesion. Um, but it is chock full. I mean, it's, it's a pretty hefty study. Uh, it's chock full of information. And I will link to the study in the stone notes Stow notes, show notes that you, so you can take a look for yourself, but it is pretty cool. If you're into the brain, into neuroscience, I love reading um, about Henry. Uh, we did learn a lot from him and um, his family was very, very gracious enough to allow Henry to be studied for the remaining 50 years of his life. And I'll leave you with the, the fact that, you know, Henry was, Anybody who met him said that he was just the most lovely and wonderful person. And there, you know, maybe he was chosen for a reason because Henry's um, brain gave so much insight, um, you know, and in, in bettered our understanding of how to help other people with brain injuries that Henry was really a gift to everybody. So I hope that's what you take from it as well. All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed um, episode two of our brain series. Um, please, if you enjoyed this episode, um, please leave a review. I really appreciate um, some reviews on iTunes because they allow um, other people to find this podcast and enjoy these stories as well. So thank you so much, everyone. Do you have an autobiology question for Jennifer? Ask it at autobiology.net or Instagram at autobiology with Jennifer. And keep listening to see if your question has been featured. And remember, anyone can be an autobiologist.